Uh, Today I'm going to be reading out of portions of Ephesians 4 and 5 to set the stage for some of the things that I want to bring out and highlight out of Acts 15 today. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as I read verses 4 through 16 and uh, chapter 5, 15 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then now 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would remember where your Son is and what he is doing and who he is and what has been accomplished and what will be accomplished according to the promises and proclamation of your word. So let us hear your word now and believe it to be filled by the Spirit and not by debauchery, to be filled with the love of you and not the love of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
Today, the sermon is called, They Declared All That God Has Done. And it is a, a bit of a, a stretch for me to say that today we're going to talk about the call to singing in Acts 15, when Acts 15 has no one that we see recorded singing any songs or any kind of imperative direct call for us to be singing. So it doesn't really seem like that today would be a, a faithfully uh, expositorial sermon um, since none of those things are present in its specific form in this passage. But I feel that my sermon is somewhat of a defense that it is, that it is indirectly and an imperative, <laughs> that there is by nature of how and what is going on in this chapter there is a call for us to sing. It is a consistent reinforcement to all of the other passages that we do have in the scriptures that command us to sing. The Bible has recorded in it about 185 songs, at least what they classify as songs. Now, some of the songs or some of the things in the Bible, it's kind of difficult because as you read the verbiage going preceding it, some things will say, and they sang this, or they declared this, or they proclaimed this. And so I think what they've done here in that particular number, I did not go through and read all 185 to see what they all said, but I think these are the things that are kind of categorized under the terms of they sang, or it is in some kind of category of an understanding that there was a song. There may even be more than that if you take in light of all the things of just proclaiming praises to God. But I think they try to categorize, and they have determined that 185 songs are in the scriptures, and 150 of them are found where? In the Psalms. So it's 80% of what we consider to be songs. But really, the whole of Scripture is a proclaiming of what God has done and accomplished, and it is a song in of itself in many different ways, but there is a designation of singing, and so I don't want to mess up or confuse or water down the definition of singing, because singing means to make a melody of our, with our voices or a sound that was bringing praise to God. It is a vocal activity that is brought in with melody. But there is a category of what we are to be singing that's clearly taught to us in Scripture. And that is what I believe I see in the parallel of what is going on in portions of Acts 15 that would teach us what our battle song is. Now, who could tell me where the first song is recorded in the scriptures that we see? The first time something is considered to be a song. <laughs> well, he was the first to be referencing, but it doesn't record the song, right? He just talks about his, nice his place, right? I don't know if it's a, a song for us to sing, so... I, what would be a song that's given to us <laughs> that we are to sing? One of the first ones. Yeah, I thought Lamech might be a, an answer, but one of the ones that's given to us as a song for God's people to sing. 
And we read about Moses just now. This song. In. Well, she came in, I think she followed through. That was Moses' song, and then she came in there at the end. And it was nice of Jonathan to not stop where I had referenced at 21. He went to the full element. And I, after I wrote that and sent it out, I'm like, oh, okay, I should have just went ahead and went with the whole thing. So I, I, pre, I don't know if you realized that I had 21 on there. But having Miriam's, um, which is really a kind of a second song, it's kind of an accompany, maybe even a chorus to that particular song. Um, but that Moses' song in Exodus 15 is the first recorded song for us. Now, where do we see maybe one of the last things that are proclaimed as a song? Should be an easy answer. Was it in Revelation? It's it could be Exodus. I mean, excuse me, Revelation 19 through 22. There are things proclamations there that you could say, well, that could be, is that a song? But none of them say that they're singing. It's actually the last time that there's any reference to a song being sung in the verbiage of singing is in Revelation 15. And you know what song they were singing in Revelation 15? They were singing Moses' song, actually, which is in parallel and thematic element to Worthy is the Lamb. Um, but in, it's because Worthy of the Lamb is actually a proclamation. Again, it gets kind of confusing whether some of the proclamations are actually done in a way of singing. But the last time it is referenced in the verbiage of being an act of singing is in Revelation 15. And they're actually singing Moses' song. If you would turn to Revelation 15, I want to read that um, for us today because um, of all the commentaries I've read, they all isolate this being as the last technical song given in the scriptures, and it's interesting that it is a revision or translation of the very first song. I don't know if you all knew that. I didn't know that until studying this. And so you kind of have the other bookend, and of course there are the other things that were being proclaimed by angels and creatures and people um, throughout the rest of Revelation also. But in Revelation 15, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, Great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them are the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Here, this second bookend of the songs of scripture, the parallels, literally the first one, and everything inside of it tends to have that same content, the same proclamation, the same point of 
what the song is about. And it is about the deeds of the Lord. It is what he has accomplished, what he said he was going to do, and what he did accomplished, accomplish with his son. Excuse me here. I had a bad feeling with this new iPad that I was going to mess up, and I did. And so we see here in the scriptures that there are consistent themes in the songs. Now, there are different kinds of songs. There's In Lamentations, there's five dirges. It's a set of five dirges throughout Lamentations. And there's some that are, are going to be cries out to God and, and pleading out to him. We see a diversity of that in the Psalms itself. And it, it's an encouragement to us and, a, and also a lesson to us to see the different things that God does want us to sing and how and the posture of what to sing. But they all land and are all foundationally rooted in the wonder of who God is and his righteous deeds. It's a reminder to us whether we're lamenting or we are repenting, we are being drawn back to the goodness and wonder, the justness and the righteousness of who God is. It is always built on his mighty deeds, in the things that he has done. And if it's a lament or repent, it is to draw us in time or even a crying out for help. It is to bring us back to hope. It is to bring us back to a place of eternal joy and comfort and peace in him. And what we see in Acts 15 is this same thing going on with the Acts of the prophets and the apostles and the whole assembly of elders and people here that where we see in the midst of this debating and dissension, where we see the midst of battle going on, where people of God who have come to know him in faith are being troubled, there is the exact same theme in their proclamation that is in the theme of all of the songs of God. And so as we look at Acts 15 for what it brings to us and what it shows for us is it has the broader element of the church being assembled together in this battle of truth, in this battle of recognition of what Christ has done, we see interwoven inside of that them ultimately doing the very work that singing is supposed to do. So I cannot say with authority that this was a specific call for us to sing here in Acts 15, but as we see the narrative of the life of the church, we see here the DNA of the church of the risen king with the flowing of the Holy Spirit. And what's going on here in Acts 15 is the equivalent DNA of the church in what and how we are supposed to sing. So if anything, it is reinforcing for us what our songs should be about. It is reinforcing for us the necessity of our songs and our singing. And so therefore, I think that since there is that very clear DNA parallel, that there is a proclamation for us here that is a reinforcement of the imperative for us to sing praises to God. And I wanted us to highlight that today because I think it's so necessary for us to remember what God has instructed us to sing and how we are to sing. I want to highlight just some of those things in Acts 15 now. If you look at Acts 15 in verse 2, I'll read. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Here we see this battle song, and I even titled this here, the the meat of the fight. Here on both sides of this, we see that there's fighting and dissension and debate about what is the essence of our salvation. Again, that is the primary highlight that we see in Acts 15. It is the proclamation of our salvation from God. And in the middle of this, as they are in the middle of this battle, there is this battle-themed song pointing us back to describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and declaring all that God had done. And in both of those, we have a benefit from that as we see this declaration of what God has done, one in converting the Gentiles, which is a fulfillment of his promises. We see that this brought great joy to the brothers. We see that in the scriptures, when we're taught about singing, that there should be this element of bringing us joy or at least bringing us out of a place or putting us into a place of hope, even when we are in a place of despair. It was great to see there in the, the song that we sang earlier. I noticed this as we were singing this, maybe because of where my mind is, in Come People of the Risen King in the second verse, it says, Come those whose joy is the morning sun and those weeping through the night. Come those who tell of battles won and those struggling in the fight. That we are called to this particular activity of singing his praises in the midst of our celebration of God's victory, but also in the midst of battle. Here in the middle of this battle of truth in Acts 15, as God is showing forth this spreading out and also this assembling of all of his people in the middle of this is a battle song of the salvation of God and what he has done. And it is bringing forth in a response of great joy. And in verse 4, it says that of all that God had done with them, it is God's work and deeds with them. Skipping over to verse 11, it says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all of the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Here you would say, well, actually, the assembly got quiet. How are you using this as a proclamation of how we are called to sing? Actually, I think it is important for us, interestingly enough, and (laughs) Jonathan's song, to be still and to be silent and to know what God has done. But in this situation, to be still sometimes in how we approach the songs to listen to what we're actually singing. It is so easy for us to just sing without thinking about the great wonders. I mean, if we, I think if we actually understood some of the songs that we were singing, we, we'd probably just pass out. 
And just the, the magnitude of the truths that are captured in these hymns of this great God in our great sin, in our great salvation by this great God from our great sin and damnation. It is a wondrous thing, but we can very easily sing these week to week or day to day and not be moved to the place where the reality of this is actually at. doesn't mean that we are to just give up. It is to continue on and hope that we would listen, that we, just as the assembly here, as it was the truth was being proclaimed about where our salvation came from, the assembly fell silent, and they went ahead and listened some more so that they could hear what was being related about the signs and wonders that God had done, and again, through them. What a wonderful way to continue that. It's not just God had done these things, that God had done these great, wonderful things, but it was with us and through us that he is doing these wonderful things. And so here we see that DNA that is consistent in other songs. And so Three reasons why I think that we are called to sing that is being reiterated and reinforced in this particular passage is one, he commands us. He commands us to sing. So this is not just a, hey, if this is your personality or if this is something that you like to do or if this is your kind of thing, you're to sing. Now, it doesn't mean that we all have the equal gifts of singing. It doesn't mean that we all sound good at singing and that that we all can sing very well. But we are commanded and we are commanded to even take on the endeavor of making it a skillful activity. We are to put effort into it. So the first reason, just because God is God and we are his creation, he commands us to sing. We begin our worship with a call to worship. I was talking to Eric Fields, the pastor at, um, at Grace Bible, and we were talking about the order of worship, and he, he gave me a layout of what he did, and I didn't see a call to worship. And I said, well, some of the things that are missing that our congregation we find very important are it would be good to have a call to worship. It would be good to have a, some kind of confession or acknowledgement of sin and assurance of grace. And then you, know, you have readings of passages, so that's good. And And then, of course, communion. And he said, well, you know, actually, our Old Testament reading is always a call to worship because I'm totally in agreement with that. That is, we have to have a call to worship. And so he he said it's actually there. He just didn't have it listed as that, that we are called to worship. And one of the ways to worship, and many of our calls to worship in Scripture tell us to do that with singing. So it is a command. It is not an option. It's not an elective for God's people for us to sing. Secondly, he is worthy. He is worthy of our singing. It is his deeds, his deeds and his person by nature should call, cause us to sing. That he demands it just by who he is. He, he tells us in his word to do this, but he, de- he deserves it. He is, by who he is, by his very own person, requires that his creation sing out in praise to him. And his word teaches us that his creation, not just his people, but that all of his creation 
declares and sings his praises. It's one of the great things of, you know, I, I just, I'm like, God, what were you thinking? And when we, in spring, I, we had the windows open, and at about 4 o'clock, it's quiet. It is really quiet. And then about the 5 o'clock hour, there's these birds singing. And it's beautiful. It is a beautiful sound. I'm like, what a wonderful gift for most of people who at least live in this kind of region or this kind of environment where there are birds like that, these songbirds, beginning the day with this praise of singing. You know, it's kind of sad when it gets so hot, we turn the air conditions on, and we just have that constant hum. We miss out on that singing of the day has come. And that's such a subtle thing. But that's his way of doing things that his creatures will sing praises to the day that he has made and we get to hear it and hopefully it is uplifting for us as we groggily get out of bed that also with being groggy from maybe allergy medicines whatever we're still waking up and getting into the day ready to serve and glorify him that his creation is automatic just by who he is he will be praised and he even tells us that if Jesus says that if, if these people won't praise, that even the rocks, and that has always amazed me. It's like, surely we want to be in a position that's better than just the rocks and giving praise to the Lord. And lastly, the reason why we should sing is that he saves us. He has saved us. These are songs. If you go to Exodus 15, it creates a thematic Presence for all of the songs when Moses sings that song. It is a song of salvation. It is a song of deliverance. And then when we have all of the commands throughout the Psalms, it's to sing a new song. That the call to a new song is to proclaim of this newness of his salvation, of his goodness, the new things that he is doing. That it is no longer we are entrapped and captive to the old death. We are new creatures being made. We are to sing a new song. It is the primary theme of all of our songs is it is about his salvation and deliverance. And that is why it is bookended at the end. It is rooted and ended there. And it's interesting if you look there in Revelation 15, it's kind of in a grim moment that the angels have their bowls full of God's wrath, getting ready to take them out, to pour them out onto the earth. But what was there? What kind of, what's, what's unique about this particular, these bowls of wrath? You know, think about waking up in the morning, think about bowls of cereal. Well, imagine bowls of wrath. What's the unique thing that the Revelation 15 is saying about these particular seven bowls of wrath? What's unique about them compared to the 10 plagues in, in Egypt? What's unique about these seven bowls of wrath? Maybe if you didn't notice it. I'll just highlight it for you. Anybody have a guess beforehand? It's the last of his judgments. It is being finished. This is a victory moment that we have God's saints there singing that song of Moses, still singing the same song. It's a, maybe shaped differently and looks a little different than what it was before, but all of the songs are ultimately songs of Moses that are ultimately songs of Jesus' victory over his enemies. And that song is being sung as the last of his wrath is coming. It is not going to always be wrath being poured out. 
We are given this great hope. And here we are in the middle of those two songs being sung. And we are called to still sing that same song in the midst of this battle as we fight with those who are proclaiming lies, as we fight with spiritual beings and spiritual authorities. We are to sing the song of Moses. And you see that DNA being proclaimed in Acts 15, and it should be parallel to the songs that we sing. That is why it's so crucial, and it is so important for us when we pick our hymns, when we pick our, well, pick all, any of our psalms are going to be fine. It might not always be appropriate. I mean, the Song of Solomon is a great song, and it has a lot to teach us, but it's not always the appropriate thing to put into certain places. But we know that we can always trust his word. But when we pick hymns that have been taking those truths from his word, it needs to be parallel, and it needs to contain that same DNA that we see here in Acts 15 and see in all of his Songs, that it is his deeds, as we see in Exodus 15 and Revelation 15, it is centered on his deeds, on how great he is and who he is, and also to notice and to be reinforced. And I know this is necessary for us, and I say this time and time again, but it is important for us to hear these words that his justice is good, that his actions that his wrath is good. That's what they were singing there in Revelation, that we are to sing praises to him about his judgments and to land on the reality that those are good things. That's hard for us. It's hard for us to see his wrath being poured out in the stories of the scriptures. It's hard for us to see the consequences and wrath that occur here and now, and it is hard for us to contemplate for us the wrath that is to come for those who do not believe and not be tempted or even be shaken by the wrong proclamation that surely that's not just. Surely God is not a good God, that he will allow these things to happen, that he would allow travesties to happen in the world today that he would allow people who had this circumstance or this circumstance to die in unbelief and have no hope for eternal life. His songs teach us to sing that his justice is just, that his wrath is good. And his songs always teach us what he has said he would do and what he has done and what he said he will do and will do in the future. It is constantly repeating that theme. It's what he said, what he did. What he said, what he will do. And we are to hold on to that. And we are to respond to that. But the songs itself teach us how to sing. Psalm 149, when we sing to the Lord a new song, we're to sing it in the assembly. And that's why I see this parallel here in Acts 15 that even from back in the psalm, we see that it is important for us to come together and to assemble together to sing these songs. Again, Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song to what he has done. Psalm 144, I will sing a new song. Psalm 33, 3, sing a new song and play skillfully and shout for joy. It even tells us how to do it, that we are to take effort in doing it. In Psalm 43, it is God 
because what he has accomplished, it is his work that he will put a new song in our mouth. We see these proclamations given to us throughout all of the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15, and Ephesians 2 teach us that we are new creations. Therefore, we should sing praises of a new song of what he's accomplished. But what else does this call to singing do for us? And here in Acts 15, we see that there is this conflict. There is this dilemma that in addition to the debate issue, that debate was having an effect on people. It was doing something to the mindset and the peace of the people. The new Christian Gentiles were troubled and disturbed. Well, what were they being troubled by? What was it that was affecting them? Well, according to the scriptures, they were being troubled by the words that people were teaching them. They were saying words. It says in verse 19, it says, Therefore, it is my judgment that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. And then verse 24, in the letter that they wrote to these Gentiles, it says, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, Although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed to us good come to come to you in one accord. That it is the words that they were being told. That words were having an effect on them. Teachings were having an effect on them. And we must ask ourselves, do the songs that we sing and the songs that we listen to, the proclamations and the things that are repetitively coming into our head, whether it is in the form of music or not, is it having an effect on us that is troubling us? Music is powerful. I was reading a few studies here, and these are just very quaint and simple and maybe very obvious things. It's funny, I'm sure that there's probably good government money from your taxes spent on some of these studies that I've discovered here about what music does to our minds. And we might say, well, this is obvious. But is it so obvious that we react to that way when we consider the things that we listen to? Is it so obvious for us that this is reality when we consider the things that we allow ourselves to hear day in and day out without the conflict of having God's word instead put before us in each day. A paper published in 2002 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology said that people felt more violent when they would listen to a particular artist and style with another group that would listen to the same artist and style if the words were more violent. So basically what they did is they had a, a study group of people and they would use the same artist in style of music, but they did this testing and reaction to questionnaires in a study of how they would react if the one group would listen to the same artist in style of music, but the words were of a violent nature. And then these people would listen to this group, they would listen to the same artist in style, but it was not of a violent nature, and the, the reaction was tremendously significant of how these people related mundane things with violence and these people did not so they would just ask him 
questions about sticks and stones, and these people would see them all in the context of weapons, in some kind of form of destruction, and these people did not. Now, that seems really kind of obvious, but when we think about that, how the words had an effect on these two study groups, that they responded by thinking about more violence. In 2011, a study of how music affects visual perception, people who were listening to happy music in one side of the group some people in the other side of the group were listening to sad music. And then they were both given the same exact test, just like the other group, but it was about identifying happy faces and sad faces. And it was talking about their visual perception, that, they could, that the people who were listening to happy music were seeing a significant greater number of happy faces <laughs> in their visual perception. And the people who were listening to sad music were seeing more sad faces by a significant margin. That they were drawn to that, that the, the, the type of music that they were listening to was having an effect on how they saw things. It had a visual effect to their perception. 2016, a journal making correlations with music in, in clinical depression says that if you are in a, already in a posture of sadness and depression, sad music will make you even sadder. But if you are a place of contentment or happiness, sad music would actually could make people happier. So that was kind of an interesting study of how, how you interpret music. It can have an effect on you based upon where you are at. And then lastly, another interesting study that I read, this is in 2017, an, Austra an Australian study showed that people who were, who were actively participating in listening and singing and dancing generally had a more positive, subjective well-being of themselves. That if they were musical, that their subjective well-being was of a higher grade than people who abstain from being involved in music. There's something amazing about music, and God has merged that in to a response mechanism for us through his command and through who he is, but also for our help. So as we consider that in light of what these what music does and what words do, it should cause us to be sober to what we listen to and what we sing. It should cause us to be protective, especially when we are defining our times of worship, that we would find things that are there for those purposes, that it brings honor to the command of God, that it brings honor to the person of God, but that it also has a positive, faithful result as we sing to one another. And that might mean to call people to repentance. It might be to cause people to be reactive to judgments that are pending. Those are potential themes of songs that we should sing to each other because it is in the very call of what we have in the word of God and here also in Acts 15. We see here what were, what were the two things that, what, what, were, what were the words about that were troubling the new Christian Gentiles? What were the themes that they were hearing the words were about their salvation. And then what was the other thing that they felt like they needed to hear is kind of a, not a, a direct 
connection, but it's an, by the fact that they were encouraging them to do something instead of listening to false doctrine. There was something else that was troubling them. What was it that was troubling them? Well, what I'm saying is that there were two you know, that would be consistent with the understanding of their salvation. So they were saying, you know, stop listening to the false doctrine, but rather it would seem good to us that you would abstain from things interwoven with idolatry is essentially what we can ascertain from that. Because we, we again know that it wasn't necessarily the act of eating food that's the primary focus. It was its connection with the idolatry. And then secondly, to abstain from sexual immorality. So as we look at this particular passage today, and we think about some of the powerful effects of music today, what do you think that in general, on the mass level of music that is being sung and the songs that are being pumped into our ears, whether it's at a grocery store or whether it's in your own collection or your kid's collection, what are two primary themes of those songs that are being celebrated? sensuality connected to the understanding of the idols of the world today and of sexual immorality. There are two of the primary themes of the songs that are being pumped out there today. And then you also have some songs of violence, and, but it's pride and arrogance coming back to our understanding of idolatry. I mean, it's kind of an easy thing, you know, idols. That's easy. It's an easy blanket because it covers every element of our sin. So what should we be singing about? We should be singing songs that not only tell of God's wonder, but God's righteousness. And it should tell us to refrain from idolatry and sexual immorality. It shouldn't be telling us the opposite. We shouldn't be pumping our heads and our minds and our tongues because typically it goes like that. It goes into our ears, into our brain, and it comes out of our mouth. And amazingly enough, when you hear someone singing that, and you say, whoa, what are you singing? Well, I wasn't thinking about it. Well, that's even worse. <laughs> that you're proclaiming something that is vile and wrong, and we pump that in. We allow that. And it's, it's, it's so commonplace in our society that I, I, I can't... Food city. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not going to a nightclub. <laughs> you know, I, I go just to a grocery store, and I can hear a song about sexual morality. And it's encouraging it. And it's in a positive way. And it has a, an effect on our mind. And especially when you think about the psychology of the mind, and you think about the proclamation of false doctrine and false teaching, and you put positive music with false teaching, it can really mess you up. And you put happy music with things that bring forth the judgments of God, that is a very dangerous recipe. But what do we have? What was the response that they had here when they were corrected in things that they were obviously participating in? They were corrected in their doctrine, in their wrong understanding, that they cannot save themselves, that it is only Christ that saves them, and that they cannot continue to participate in the things that bring forth judgment and death. That's a blessing to hear that. Well, their response is the same that our response should be. And how we should posture the songs that we sing. It says in verse 31, when they had read those words, when they have heard those proclamations being given to them, they rejoice because of its encouragement. 
And it said, And Judas and Silas, who were with themselves prophets, encourage and strengthen the brothers with what? Many words. It's a battle. It's a battle of words, and we are given battle songs. Most wars throughout history have battle songs going into the song, into the war, going in the middle of it, and into afterwards songs about the battles. We see that in Scripture. We see it in life. This is still a battle song. It is a battle song of victory, but just like in Revelation 15, the judgments are not yet complete, and we are still in the midst of this battle of truth and an action We are to sing songs and rejoice in the things that are true with God. And it says, and then they were sent off in peace. The response to these right singing of songs, like what's here in Acts 15, built in that same DNA and truth that we see here in the actions of the church, it should bring us peace. It should bring us hope of the great salvation that we have. Let us pray.